0: Amen. Glory to God alone. And even now, even though we were singing about the glory of God alone, we continue that as we look to his word and find out more of his excellencies, his excellent ways for us. So take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. And we're going to look today at verses 27 to 30. Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to to thirty. For the sake of context, you'll remember that in recent weeks, we've been listening intently to Paul's testimony of Christ being all, Christ being everything by life or by death. And here in these verses, it's going to turn from Paul's testimony to the Philippians' expectation from. His role in living for Christ to their role, and we can hear it well in these few verses. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. The year was 1934. The place was a little missions outpost in eastern China. The people were none other than the young missionaries, John and Betty Stamm, along with their three-month-old daughter, Helen. Recently, a civil war had erupted nearby and the communists or the Red Army forces were fighting with the government forces, and this meant bad news for missionaries who were preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. As is still true today, the communists perceived Christianity as American, as an outside influence, as a threat to their political rule. And so the Stams, as soon as they caught word of communist militants coming from the north, John made arrangements for the protection of his family, but it was too late. Gunshots ricocheted through the town, and in a matter of mere minutes, uh, this militia was at the front door of the missions compound. Begging for uh, these soldiers to preserve the, the, the life of his wife and child, uh, John would immediately be bound before them, taken into custody, thrown into prison, and just a few hours later his wife of a little over a year and his 3-month-old daughter would be thrown into the same prison cell with him. The stamps knew that things were bad. They were real bad. As evidenced by the facts that one of the militants was complaining Uh, that the baby was crying too much and said we're just going to kill her one of the other soldiers actually in the compound said no no don't do that like it's just a baby and he said okay well you can die in her place then and they immediately took him out to the middle of the compound and macheted him to death it was at that point that John realized that he only had a few days to hours to live on this earth and so he did his best to scramble off a note to the China Inland Mission to let them know what these militants actually wanted, which was, its, in essence, 20000 American dollars to release them. But the letter never made it. And so the next day, the Stams, along with their three-month-old daughter, would be marched 12 miles south to a small city, and they would spend the night at the abandoned house of a peasant there. It was a rather large house but as soon as he heard about what was going on he hit the road and it was at this moment that the, the Stams would have their last precious moments on this earth with their daughter. Betty would hug her for the last time feed her for the last time and then hide her in a sleeping bag along with a note somewhere in the house The next morning John and Betty without daughter in tow would be marched to the center of the city square in this small town and then John would be forced onto his knees bound and naked before an entire crowd and saying a brief and simple prayer to God. The sword would slice through the air that would separate his head from his body. The way that the story unfolds The biographers record that Betty didn't cry out. She didn't shriek. She merely fell herself and moaned in agony over her husband. And then just as quickly, the same sword that took off his head took off hers. A couple days later, some peasants in that village would hear the cries in that abandoned house of that little child. And in it, they would find the note, that explained what was going on. And this little girl would be rescued by some Christians and then sent to live with her grandparents in the United States. And through it, word would actually make its way to the U.S. of the martyrdom of John and Betty Stamm. From what I understand, their alma mater, the Moody Bible Institute, 700 people would enlist themselves for missionary service upon hearing that very report. And in the country of their ministry, the Christians would gather together and take their lifeless bodies and place them into the ground. And here, on the basis of the letter that John wrote before his death, they would put the following. Gravestone. Simple words. John Cornelius Stam." That Christ may be glorified, whether by life or by death. Elizabeth Scott Stam. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. What amazing devotion. When you think of Philippians 1 20 and 21, you think that's it. This is exactly what it looks like. They gave it all their whole life, to answer our question from last week, clearly revolved or orbited around Christ. It's a stunning example, but the story begs the question. What about the rest of us? True tales of missionary heroes like John and Betty Stamm or John Patton or William Carey or Adoniram Judson or J. Hudson Taylor. They infuse us with wonder and admiration of those who so dearly love their Lord, but they oftentimes leave us wondering, what about the rest of us? What does allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ look like for everybody else? See, the truth is that some of you in this room this morning live in perpetual guilt that you will never, quote-unquote, go. By nature of the fact that you still live in the same country or you speak the same language, many are concerned that they have somehow been unfaithful to the gospel of Christ. You ever feel that way? Others, others here accounts such as these and... um. They just kind of settle into a hardened complacency. They're pretty settled, and they, they actually would say things like, you know, that kind of allegiance, that type of devotion, that's just out of reach, Justin, that's rather unrealistic. They've convinced themselves that passionate devotion to Christ and the gospel is the stuff of pastors or missionaries. And maybe they say, well... The advance of the gospel that's not my problem but and i've heard this before if the lord leads i'll get more involved and then there's a final group i think this is maybe the majority the group of us that live somewhere in that uncomfortable place between guilt and complacency maybe we bounce back and forth like a ping-pong match between the two If I were to give it a label, I would call this particular group of people the confused. They're not guilty. They're not complacent. They just don't know what allegiance to Jesus actually looks like for them. They stayed in their own culture. They speak their native tongue. And yet, at the same time, they understand Maybe you understand that, yeah, the gospel needs to advance in southwest Florida just as much as it does in southeast Asia. You know that. You know that if everybody went, well, there would be no one here. I mean, there's some good logic in this. But the confused still don't know what it looks like to be totally committed to the advance of the gospel around the world in this particular culture. And so this is what we try to do. Uh, Maybe we we ask ourselves, okay, am I committed to Christ? Does my life really orbit around Jesus as long as I am? And then we start filling in blanks with stuff like this. If I'm busy at church. Or if I'm committed to some type of evangelistic program. Maybe then my life is actually centered around Christ. Or maybe I take an occasional missions trip. Maybe I, I give to the church and pray so that others may go. That's how I evidence the fact that my life has revolved around Christ and his mission. But even when those boxes are checked, the confused often wonder, am I really all in? Is there something else that I need to do? And in light of these prominent postures toward the church's mission, guilt, complacency, confusion, we need clarity. What does such ordinary allegiance to the gospel actually look like? We know what extraordinary allegiance to the gospel looks like, but what does ordinary allegiance to the gospel look like? I think that the unsettledness that we feel in some ways represents the saints in Philippi. The way that we feel is the way that they could have felt. Could you imagine what it would have been like to receive a personal letter from your fearless missionary founder and friend, Paul, who writes them from prison, calling them, listen to this, partners in the gospel. I mean, it's almost laughable. You would think, oh, no, Paul, you're the real gospel guy. We're just kind of like, you know, we're second string. But he views them, interestingly, as full partners in the gospel not in any way second-rate citizens like he is grateful for them like he like every time he prays he just he prays for them with joy because he's so excited about the gospel advances taking place in their life he thanks god for them as gospel partners and most recently he's updated them on his daring and adventurous gospel exploits as he's awaiting the trial at home and We got a lot of uh, stuff about Paul, and we see like, oh, wow, Paul's amazing, because even when he's in prison, the gospel's going forward. And, oh, man, Paul, like, he's just on it. Man, he's really all about Jesus, because he actually doesn't care if he lives or he dies. He just wants to see the gospel go forward. And it kind of leaves you wondering, if you're one of the Philippians, that's amazing, Paul, but what about the rest of us? And interestingly, Paul answers their question. He doesn't demean them. He doesn't make them feel second rate. He actually includes them. And it's very clear in the grammar because when you look at your Bible and beginning at verse 12 and you go all the way down to verse 26, you notice a lot of personal pronouns. I, me, mine. Why? Because Paul's talking about himself. But notice what happens at verse 27. Just kind of let your eyes scan from there down into chapter two. You start to see a lot of you or you all. It goes from first person to second person. He goes from talking about himself to talking about them. There's another notable change between verses 12 and 26 and 27 and following. In twelve to twenty six, you have a lot of what I don't know, the Greek scholars would call the indicative mood. I think in English we would call it declarative sentences. Just matter statement of facts. He's not commanding anything. He's just declaring or indicating like what his position is at the time. And you know what happens in verse 27? Immediately changes to imperative sentences. He starts making commands. So it goes from what he's been doing to what they should be doing. How he's modeling the gospel and how they can actually fulfill the mission themselves. And this is good news. Because now we actually get the Holy Spirit inspired expectations of what faithfulness to the gospel looks like for the rest of us. That should be a relief. I really do pray that we would walk out of this place today without that perpetual guilt that we're just not really doing enough for Jesus. So what should it look like? What does it look like? Well, here's what we'll see in this. We're going to see how we express our allegiance to the gospel, and it is summed up in the first half of verse 27. Look in your Bibles. It says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that, whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you. And then he's going to fill in the blanks. But do not miss the importance of that opening sentence. It's an interesting one. Paul calls for singular focus, only focus on the, this manner of life, in some translations, of being worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, let's be clear. The term manner of life, or some translations put it as live or conduct yourselves is a pretty, like, outstanding term. It doesn't just mean live. There were other terms to, to use there. Paul is telling them, actually, to not just live, but live as citizens. Not just to conduct themselves, but to conduct themselves as citizens. The, the, the root in the word is, uh, is pole, like from which we get police. Or you think of the polis, the Greek city-state. Or you think of policies, <laughs> Uh, it's something official He said, look you conduct yourself in an official way you live you behave as and i'm going to interject a word here that he'll use in chapter 3 verse 20 you conduct yourself as heavenly citizens you're not just citizens of rome you're citizens of heaven and there's a certain way that you live in light of that. you want to live worthy of this unique citizenship that you have in heaven As you may remember from our previous discussions in Philippians, they were especially proud to be a Roman colony. And Paul is saying, hey, just as you're proud to be Roman, you need to be even more proud that you're redeemed. And that needs to evidence itself in particular ways. And this is where things get interesting to me, because what Paul has in mind here, friends, is not hypothetical, It is not merely like a mindset. It is not merely something internal. It is actually something that you can see and hear about. Notice he says, I want you to live worthy of the gospel of Christ in such a way. Now, here's the degree to which they should express this allegiance. That if I get out, I could come and see it with my eyes. Or if I stay in jail, other people will be able to tell me about it. It's not abstract, it's concrete. It's not hypothetical, it's actual, it's evidential. And so when I talk about this, this point of like allegiance to the gospel, I want you to know that there are two, in this text, there are two expressions of allegiance to the gospel. Two expressions of allegiance to the gospel. So what does living for Christ look like for the rest of us? What are the expressions of faithfulness to the gospel for normal church members? Well, it's relatively simple. We express our allegiance through unity around the gospel. There's your first. Unity around the gospel. And the second is boldness with the gospel. Boldness with the gospel. Unity around the gospel and boldness with the gospel. To put it another way, we express allegiance by battling together for it and being assertive with it. If you like that better, go with that. Battling together for it, and being assertive with it. Let's look at the first one. Ordinary allegiance is expressed through unity around the gospel, or battling together for it. Look at the second half of verse 27. That you are, this is what I want to hear, this is what I want to see, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now what we have here is the main verb of a really long sentence, and you know what it is? is stand firm. Stand firm. When you, if you would have been a Philippian in that particular role and culture, you would have heard the verb stand firm, and you immediately would have started thinking military. We think of uh, terms like this, like hold your ground, keep your position. It implies that there's some type of attack going on, and you're not to retreat. You're actually supposed to hold your ground. You're supposed to keep your post. So Paul is saying that, hey, guys, you all need to be keeping your position. And this is where things are are really cool to me. Position in what? Or maybe better yet, in whom? It says in one spirit. Now, in your English version, if you have the ESV, it says, in one spirit, and it's all lowercase. And as soon as you read it that way, what do you think? Oh, yeah, in one frame of mind. Um, we think of the, uh, the French phrase, uh, esprit de corps. You know, that we think of... Um, like the spirit of the room, or somebody's spirit, or demeanor, and I, you just need to know something, friends, that there is actually no historical instances in which the word spirit, pneuma, was used in that particular time period to talk about feelings. <laughs> it is talking about, here, the Holy Spirit. There are two other times where Paul is arguing for unity in a church, and he says, in one spirit and the translators will actually put it in capitals it's the exact same phrase in Greek I'll just give you these two you can look at them on your own time but one is Ephesians two eighteen. Paul's talking about this division between the Jews and the Gentiles and he's saying you've been placed in one spirit talking about the Holy Spirit that gives you unity and then the other is in first Corinthians chapter 12 verse 13 where they weren't getting along with one another because of their spiritual gifts, and he says, you better get along because you exist in one spirit. (laughs) The Holy Spirit. It's the same phrase. So what he's doing here is he's saying, all right, you're going to make this stand. You're going to withstand the onslaught, but here's what's going to happen. You're doing it in the Holy Spirit. He's giving them their source of strength. He's reminding them of their unity together. He says, you all, you need to keep Standing firm in the one Holy Spirit, but notice it's not just defense, like keep your position. He, he goes on the offense. He ratchets up the intensity of this, and he says, holding your ground together in the Holy Spirit, and adds this phrase, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He's not just about losing ground, but they are supposed to be offensively battling together in the same frame of mind as one person for the faith which is the gospel battling for the faith together again we've got warfare language I mean like it alluded to like bands of straggling soldiers and warriors uniting together and coordinating an attack against an enemy it's going on the offensive and he's saying you guys do this together and so this provokes a couple questions at least for me hang with me here's the question number one for me is okay attack really Uh, What does this look like? (laughs) What does it look like to go on the attack together for the sake of the gospel? And then, secondly, what exactly are we fighting for? How do we know if we've won? Well, let me answer those in turn. Number one, what does it look like to go on the attack? Well, I think we should maintain the militaristic terminology. Don't emasculate the word. It is indeed a battle that we partake in together. Uh, The the word there, uh, striving together, is soon athleo. Do you recognize the term athleo from which we get athletics? Uh, You're thinking of a competition. You think of something that requires physical exertion. He says, look, you're going to exert yourselves physically together. But this is not only, friends, an athletic metaphor, but this was the very term that was used to describe a gladiator battling together with others in an arena. I mean, it is graphic, and you need to just kind of get some history. So the gladiatorial era began around 2300 B.C., and it ended up peaking a couple hundred years after Jesus. I mean, it is on the upswing. It is at its peak at about this point, and there is no doubt in my mind that Paul intends to convey to them something that required not only battle, but listen to this, battle together. Battle together. I'm glad we're teaching the conscience class right now because I'm going to reference a movie. And you're going to have to be okay with it. (laughs) So, in um, Ridley Scott's multi Oscar award winning historical drama, Gladiator, there's this fascinating scene where Maximus is about to face his second battle. And he and the other gladiators are suited up and they're about to step into the arena. And at that point, like once they're standing before the emperor, all the guys actually pledge allegiance to Caesar and Maximus just stands there. He doesn't even acknowledge uh, the emperor. But it goes overlooked and these men are preparing for the torrential horde of specialists that are going to fill into this arena and just basically the way it's supposed to fall out is that every one of them were supposed to die. And so Maximus stands there and he yells out to the guys, have any of you ever been in the army? And you hear a few muffled yeses and he says, all right, well, you know what we have to do. We must stay together. And so the gates open, the charioteers work themselves out, they begin to circle this group and some of these guys, foolishly, having obviously never been in the army, knowing the importance of being together, decide to actually move away from the group and they're immediately picked off. And yet the attack comes and comes and comes, and they keep their shields together, and they withstand the attack. And then in this this, appropriate moment, like after their defenses are worn down, like one of the chariots turns over, and then immediately the guys go on the onslaught. They overcome. It was unheard of. And when I see that scene, I think striving together side by side. We're talking about, nope, this isn't just me versus the Because gladiators fight for glory, and they fight for personal survival. But what are we fighting together for? Paul says it this way, for the faith, which is the gospel. We band together, we fight together for the faith, which which is the gospel. Listen. Listen. Our allegiance is to something other than ourselves. We battle together because we have something outside ourselves. We're looking to advance. As American citizens pledge allegiance to the flag, so also heavenly citizens pledge allegiance to the gospel. As the soldiers of Iwo Jima struggled together to raise that flag over the island, so the soldiers of Christ struggle together to raise the flag of the gospel. We're looking to advance something concrete. We do not fight, listen to this, we do not fight merely for survival or political influence or for personal convenience or even even local church prominence. We're not fighting to plant the name of Faith Bible Church around the world. We are planting to advance the name of Jesus. We fight and we coordinate together to see more and more people find joy in the good news that Jesus is the Christ. See, here's the deal, friends. Like, it is a mess out there. I think you got that. You you get a sense of it. Just watch the news if you need a reminder. The world reels under the repercussions of our first parents' sin. People's lives are ruined on account of their own rebellion. People will face eternity suffering suffering. Uh, at, at the hand of god's righteous wrath because of their rebellion against Him, like there's a problem like we need to be on the offensive for something and so we fight together with the good news so that people can know jesus the jesus who can right the wrong the jesus who can rectify that which has been wrecked the jesus who can actually rescue rebels from god's eternal wrath we're trying to advance a message that saves friends, I have to say this. I want to apply this to the cohort at Faith Bible, but I do not want to presume a thing to anyone who may be gathered here today. I need to take a moment and address all the rest of you in light of the mission. Look, I I need you to get something. When we say that the gospel is good news, that is not just shorthand for some message that's actually really stale and boring. It really is good news news and so the question will be for you is will you actually bend your knee to the rightful lord and ruler of all the earth because to not do so is bad news for you see sin has ruined you is ruining you and will ruin you still it has ruined you insofar as you inherited a like bad status with god from your first parents You were just already born in sin. You couldn't help it. You were already messed up. And then you take this thing a step further and you realize, yeah, you started acting out on that. You have chosen your way over God's way. And guess what? A holy and righteous God doesn't like that. He will execute the rebels. And then the last thing is, as a righteous God, knowing that sin demands an eternal price, God says, okay, you're going to do this without me, you'll suffer through eternity without me, and endure my righteous wrath forever. And look, I totally get the fact, I totally get the fact that everyone in your culture, from the Disney Channel to your mother, has told you that your life is all about you and your happiness. I get that. I know that you think, listening to me this morning, that the best thing that could possibly happen to you is for you to get your own way in this life, for you to pursue your own joy and your own contentment and your own satisfaction. I totally understand. I sound like a crazy person. But can I give you some words from the wisest man who ever lived apart from the Lord Jesus Christ himself? In Proverbs 14, 12, he says it this way. This is Solomon. Solomon. There is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. I totally get that you think it seems right, but I am warning you that it leads to something horrific. Paul would say it this way. The wages of sin is death. In another place he says, apart from Christ... You, we were, but you are foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing your days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. See, our disgust at the occasional selfishness of of little children pales in comparison to God's disgust at the ongoing selfishness of sin in his own. He will eradicate it. And yet, here's the good news the good news is that Jesus came to rescue you from yourself. (laughs) He came to rescue you from that tendency that you have to run things your own way and contrary to God and who he is. Uh, Romans says it this way, while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. This is fantastic news. Listen to this. When we were foolish and disobedient and led astray and when we were like forsaken God, when we were doing things our own way, the goodness and kindness of God, our Savior, appeared and He saved us and He gave us a new life. Like while we were in that rebellion against Him, that's when He provided the rescue. This is amazing news. This, friends, is what we're fighting for. And if you're here today and you have yet to actually place yourself under the the rule and the authority of Jesus as Lord and Savior, I pray that you would do that today. This is awesome. This is amazing. And if you don't know what that means, if that's confusing for you, talk to somebody around you. Talk to me afterward. But Faith Bible family, can I talk to you for a second? Having just rehearsed that, what I just did in the last four minutes is in some way, shape, or form what we're all fighting for. That is actually what we're trying to express and propagate and make known all around us. And it's such a big thing that we actually have to do it together, Paul says. Striving, not personally, but side by side for the faith of the gospel. It is huge. How are we doing here? Let let me make this personal. And by the way, I fully realize I'm going to run out of time about halfway through this, so I'm just going to be like baloney. I'm going to chop this thing off in the middle if I have to, and we could pick it up next week. So don't be nervous that I'm still on point one. (laughs) But I want to ask you a real question here, and I'm talking to the Faith family at the moment. What was the last thing? And Look, this isn't a setup. You can answer this honestly in your heart. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. What was the last thing that you fought together for? What was the last battle that you waged that was so big that you needed to enlist other people or join other people? I'm not asking about a personal struggle that you went through or a personal battle. I'm talking about something that was so big you thought, man, I better get on board with some other people. We need to fight this thing. I I want you to think about it. I I would assume that this being an election year, that some of you have worked together in some kind of political battle. You know what that's like, right? Um, Maybe you deem yourself a Republican or a Democrat or a Libertarian. And so you've battled on behalf of your party. How'd you do that? Well, you did it via online debate, right? You engaged others on thoughts and ideas online. Uh, Maybe you did it by uh, going door to door, encouraging people to vote. Uh, maybe you did it by placing a sign out in your front yard or a bumper sticker on your car. You just thought, hey, I wanna, I'm part of this movement. I want you to be aware of the fact that I support so-and-so. Uh, maybe you actually did it by giving money to help a cause. Uh, these are, this is just an example. I'm not criticizing it. I'm saying this is an example of what I would call a joint side-by-side effort to advance something. It was so big you realized it wasn't a solo battle. You had to either join other people or get other people to join you. Other side-by-side battles could include um, your HOA. Maybe something was going down in your neighborhood. You didn't want it to happen. So some people banded together to show up to a meeting. Maybe it was something that happened in the school that your kids go to. Other people, again, recruiting, involved, you were working together. Maybe it was something in your workplace. But the point is that there are often times in our lives where we enter into mutual discussion and collaborative effort and shared objective with other people. We battle side by side. We, we fight together for something. And this is not a bad thing. But here's my question for you. In light of the fact that we do have this tendency to band together and fight for things that we think are important, things that are bigger than us, I have to ask as a, citizen, as a citizen of heaven, as a soldier of the cross, as a subject of King Jesus, as one who has pledged allegiance to the gospel, initially in baptism and ongoingly through the Lord's Supper, to what degree are you involved in the Holy Spirit-enabled battle for the faith, the gospel? I'll even give you some options. I'm going to make this easy for you. I'll give you three categories. I just want you to give yourself one. Maybe this is good fodder for a discussion with another member or something you can do in your small group. Where do you place yourself here? Here's what I think the options would be. Some of you would say, I'm always battling together for the defense and advance of the gospel. Some of you would say, sometimes battling together for the defense and advance of the gospel. And some of you would say, no, never really, advancing or battling together for the defense and advance of the gospel. Always, sometimes, never. Which one do you fall in? You know, I actually think there are a group of people who always are doing this. Like, you, I, you, you, you're you, listening to what I'm saying right now, and your conscience isn't pricked one bit, and I think that's amazing. I think many of you should actually feel this way. I know always doesn't always mean always. <laughs> I just mean virtually always. Like, it's just something that you regularly do. It's just kind of part of your life. You're, you're just in the battle. And I see it. I, I see it. I love it. I, I, as a pastor, I'm so encouraged right now. These are... These are my favorite days being at Faith Bible Church. Four and a half years, I've never been happier because of this kind of stuff. I hear of collaborative evangelism happening with family members and friends and acquaintances with whom you're sharing the gospel. I hear the stories all the time. I've heard 10 in the last two weeks of somebody else who's meeting with somebody else to share the gospel and somebody else is helping them. It's happening. It happens when we pray together for shared opportunities for the gospel, whether it be at a members' meeting Or you'll even see, you saw it in the um, member email this week, a few of us are getting together on Wednesday nights at 6 o'clock in room 202 to pray for evangelism and missions. That's a collaborative effort. We're doing that together. Or when you get together and do that in your small groups, it happens when people are asking questions about how to better defend the gospel, right? Like that's part of why we go to seminars. We're not just doing that because we don't have anything better to do, but we're trying to be equipped so that we can like, have what we need, so we're going to rely on other people to help us in the battle. And then it happens, obviously, as resources are given to advance the gospel. Friends, that's what our budget is. It's our, it's our mission strategy like on paper and numbers behind it. Like, that's what we give to. And when you're doing that, you're enabling gospel ministry, and it's amazing. And there's one more area. That is, services provided for others who are advancing the gospel in our church. Some of you may not be the most outgoing or extroverted, but here's what you're willing to do. You're willing to actually put yourselves in positions where you want to set up other people for success in evangelism. And so you watch the kids in the nursery. uh, You teach other children that you are actually comfortable with. Uh, you do things like to this building, for example, that will set up other gospel opportunities, taking care of it, uh, moving things within it. Like some of you actually have this awareness, like, yeah, I'm actually trying to do this together for the gospel. It's always. And to you, I say, this is no like no guilt. This is totally like, yes, thank God for that. It really is a category. It's, a, it's not the impossible dream. Some of you can actually be in that category. I am grateful for you. But there is another category and that is the sometimes, the sometimes, and to the sometimes, I would ask you to actually enter into battles that really matter, we already know we battle for a ton of other stuff, you know how to do co-battling, I'm just asking that you join in on the battle that really matters, but here's the deal, I don't think that many of you know actually where you fit or how to do that, you're like, oh man, I want to get engaged in this, but I don't have a clue, I know you mean well, but you feel ineffective. And so this is what I'd recommend to you. And I don't have time to go over the whole thing, but let me just go ahead and commend something to you. One, I will commend to you the book that was mentioned in the introduction, Evangelism, by Max Stiles. The reason why I asked the guys to mention that book in the introduction today is because it is not, friends, another book on how to do personal evangelism. We've got enough of that. I know all of you could take some course on how to do one-on-one soul winning. That is not what we're talking about. The thing I like about that little red book is it shows you ways that we do evangelism together as a church. I mean, sometimes it's like there's this guilt. Like, we signed up for the military. Like, we're in the Marines. We know how to shoot a gun. I mean, like, that was part of, like, basic training. But then we feel guilty because they, like, set some of you in the kitchen and some of you in administration, and then some people are more on the front lines, and they're like, oh, man, I'm just in the kitchen. <laughs> I'm not really in the Marines. No, you are in the Marines. You're actually contributing to something. And so, also, there are ways that we work together to see the gospel advance. It is the church's commission, not just yours individually. Now, that being said, I don't want anybody to walk out of here saying, like, Whew, this is awesome. That means I don't have to share the gospel with anybody. Listen to me, friends. Everyone in the military knows how to operate their weapon. And they do it as needed. But they don't feel guilty because they don't get as much action as some of the other people on the front line. So the book would help with that. And you say, you know what, just I don't want to read a book. I don't have time for that. Okay, I get it. We live in an increasingly illiterate society. Totally understand. Just call the church and meet with a the pastor then. The book would save us a lot of time. I'll go ahead and tell you that. But if you want me to tell it to you, uh, as opposed to have you read it on your own, I'd be happy to meet with you. <laughs> Seriously, friends, I am not being sarcastic. Ephesians 4.11 says that God gave pastors and teachers to the church for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. If you're thinking, man, I'm not doing ministry. I don't feel like I'm being effective. Well, friends, that's why you have three pastors on staff for and a couple other guys that do this bivocationally. It is our job, and I am not joking. We want to equip you. If you feel that you're being ineffective, you need to meet with somebody. And then the last category is the never. Never. If you're saying that, you know what, I never (laughs) am doing this together with other people. um, Look, I I just want you to understand that this is actually uh, what you signed up for. When you signed up for Jesus to be Lord, and when you said, I actually think that the gospel is good news. There's a moral imperative placed upon you to share that with other people. This actually is your mission. You don't want to be that guy in Gladiator standing off from the group, like getting picked to pieces. Like you want to be in the group doing this together. And I'm going to make a shameless plug for something. I think that some of you feel that you never have any effectiveness in advancing the gospel with others because you've been trying to do it alone for instance when we talk about church membership that is not just some business concept that got imposed upon the church membership comes from romans 12 and first corinthians 12 where paul says that we exist like a body and just as my hand is a part of the body, and the body makes the hand work, and the hand serves the body, so also God intended for you to do this evangelism thing in the context of other believers. And if you're just trying to be like the free agent off on the side, no wonder you're so ineffective. This is what the church is for. This is a partnership in the gospel here. I heard one guy, I don't know if I fully agree with it, but I like the point of it. He defined a local church as this, a group of baptized believers who have par- together for the accomplishment of the great commission it's a pretty functional definition i'll go with it we're partnering together for the accomplishment of the great commission you say justin well what does it matter if my name's on a database versus not in a database look it's not about the database this is what it's about you having that conversation with us so that we can know oh here's where they fit and it's us announcing to the rest of the church like hey here's where you could serve them and help them in their evangelism as opposed to ghosting in this place and out of this place and never having anyone come alongside you in your evangelistic efforts. One more thing, and I want to be very careful with this, but you may need to contemplate. If you never share the gospel, if you are never battling together for the faith, you need to contemplate whether or not you're in Christ. Now, hear me well. I'm not saying if you haven't led 20 people to Jesus this year that you're not a Christian. Like, if you hear that, uh you got a problem i did not say anything like that all i'm trying to say is that if you believe that the gospel is good news and you never share it you may not actually believe it's good news look i talk to many of you on sundays and that kind of thing and I mean, you have no problem sharing good things with me you tell me when you find a good auto mechanic you tell me when you eat at a good restaurant. You tell me when you eat a good, I mean, when you see a good movie. I mean, like it just, just kind of naturally comes out. Maybe the problem with evangelism is you don't actually think it's that good a news. And look, this isn't a setup. I'm not trying to set you up. Like, maybe your heart is still cold. Your eyes are still blind. Your ears are still deaf. Like, you don't actually see Jesus as something sweet and beautiful and worthy of sharing. Now, if that's the case, friends, like, you need to consider your heart. Jesus said it this way. And calling the crowd to him, Mark chapter 8, with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Notice that. Have you ever noticed that before? Jesus is saying, hey, it isn't just some like allegiance to me. It's allegiance to me and what? The Gospel. How do we know that we're committed to Jesus? Because that message of his death, burial, and resurrection is something that we're committed to. I know tons of people who are invisibly committed to Jesus. They like the idea of Jesus being their, like, boyfriend in some way. But they don't like the idea of battling on behalf of them and advancing his message. And Jesus says, no, you take up my cross, this is what it looks like. You're going to follow me and proclaim the gospel. Some of you wonder sometimes, why, by the way, like, why you don't get more persecution. Like, why your life seems to be so easy living in this 21st century context. Because you have this allegiance to Jesus personally, but not in proclamation. Look, nobody's offended by your private relationship with Jesus. They don't give one rip that you open your Bible in the morning and that you pray and that you have a devotional time. But start telling them, just start telling them that Jesus is the ruler and the rescuer. And that they are not in charge of their lives, but Jesus is actually supposed to be in charge of their life. And you're going to start having some problems on your hands, friends. It's not just an invisible commitment to Jesus as a person, but it is an active commitment to the advance of the gospel proclamation. And so, do you you even see it as good news? Now, don't worry. We're going to talk about, in the second half of this baloney, (laughs) the second half of this thing that I'm obviously not going to cover today, how boldness works, how boldness works, because I get that some of you are hearing this and you're thinking, like, Justin, what are you asking me to be, like, a kamikaze for Christ? <laughs> you know, am I just that, like, weird, awkward person that, like, you know, can't even, like, eat at a restaurant without giving away a gospel track? Nope, not what I'm saying. We'll do some clarity next week, but in the meantime, all I'm asking is if you see this to be good news and if you share it, or are, are you actually engaged in this battle with others? Because Paul says, This is the fundamental expression of your allegiance to Christ. This is what it looks like for the normal person. No, you don't have to go to East China and get your head decapitated for Christ. That may happen. But like normal people are at least consistently and regularly engaging in the gospel with other people for the glory of Christ. That's the way that it works. And so this text is teaching us the ordinary way to express allegiance to the gospel is through unity around the gospel or battling together for it. You know, when it comes down to it, ordinary gospel allegiance looks like us just embracing our identity as a soldier of the cross. There's a different mindset. There's a different mindset between peacetime and wartime. It's evidenced, I first read this in a book by John Piper, and the difference between uh, the Queen Mary that actually sits off the coast of uh, Los Angeles, between Los Angeles and San Diego. And right now, if you were to go to that ship, if they would let you on for coronavirus, so whenever that goes away, but (laughs) if you were to go to see the Queen Mary, uh, what you'll notice is that that half of it is presented as this luxurious, um, just, I mean, beautiful well-decorated cruise ship the other half is what happened to it during World War II the Queen Mary this is one of the same ships that was birthed from the company that actually created the Titanic I mean it was the epitome of luxury and what you see when you go on that ship is the difference between peacetime and wartime all Paul is trying to remind us friends is that if you're truly going to express allegiance to Christ it's going to look more like wartime than peacetime You will see yourself and act as if you are indeed a soldier of the cross. The 18th century hymn writer and poet Isaac Watts provides fitting words for personal reflection. This is how we'll close. Just listen. Listen to Watts' poetic expression of what it looks like to be a soldier of the cross. Ask yourself, am I truly engaged in this battle? Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? And shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend to grace? To help me on to God? Sure. I must fight if I would reign. Increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil, endure the pain, supported by thy word. Thy saints in all this glorious war shall conquer though they die. They view the triumph from afar and seize it with their eye. When that illustrious day shall rise and all thy armies shine in robes of victory through the skies, the glory shall be thine. So, are you a soldier of the cross? That's the mindset, that's the expression of allegiance to Christ. People can hear it, and they can see it through consistent, regular. Repeatable, intentional group efforts to advance the gospel. I pray you would be if you're not. And if you are, you are engaged in this. But be encouraged, friends. You don't have to be a John and Betty Stamp. You don't have to be a J. Hudson Taylor. You don't have to be an Adoniram Judson. You can be a faithful follower of Jesus Right here in Southwest Florida, as we work together to see the gospel go both here and around the world. Let's pray. Father, remind us again of our ultimate allegiance to Christ, where we pe- pledge ourselves to so many petty things. We just get distracted. You know, I'm so grateful for Paul. I'm so grateful for or the way that he includes us in on this. He simplifies it for us. Only let our, our manner of life, our living as a citizen, be worthy of the gospel, who is Christ. Lord, impress us again with good news. Lord, don't flood us Lord, with guilt unless we need it. But may we know, grace, that we get to participate in this battle together, or may we walk out of this place today, Lord, excited about the opportunity that we have as a church to do this together. And if there's anyone here who is yet to see the gospel as good news, we pray that you open their heart, that they would turn from their sin, that they would trust that you are indeed good, that your rule, Lord, is perfect, that your rescue is sufficient and complete. We do all of this as we ask it in the name of your Son, our Lord, Jesus Christ, amen.